and welcome to yet another episode of Sacred Cinema with me, your host, uh, Jimmy Berners-Sconi, recording the studios of 2XFM People Powered Radio. And on today's show, I've got a special treat for you. We're talking cinematic depictions of werewolves. Even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Yes, that's right. We're talking wolf men, werewolves, cinematic depictions of situations in which our male protagonist undergoes some kind of metamorphosis and morphs into a wolf man or some kind of big wolf-like creature. You might be asking me, Jimmy, that's absurd. Why would we talk about something as silly and supernatural as that? Well, I think it leads on well um, from our from our conversation last week when we talked about manhunting and the idea of thinking of another person, thinking of another human being as as like as your prey, something animalistic. And and it really did get me thinking about why do we use animals as symbols for certain kinds of human behavior? You know, when we're doing that, we're often trying to show the limits or uh, uh, insult someone, maybe, when we, when we refer to them as an animal or a certain kind of animal. We're trying to say that you're pushing the boundaries of what it means to be human, or, or sorry, not what it means to be human, but you're pushing the boundaries of humanity. Uh, you are no longer acting humanely. You are going into the depths or you're entering the wilderness that is the animalistic Right, you're, 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 you're departing from what we know to be reasonable human behavior, and you're starting to adopt traits that are way too primal. Um, they, they come from a place that is perhaps way too aggressive, way too animalistic, to, to put it um, succinctly. So what kind of warnings are films about werewolves giving us? What are they saying about the people that are prone to becoming wolves or who become wolves? What are they saying? Well, let's go back to that original quote, right? This is the one that, that actually comes from one of the films that we're going to be talking about today. Even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. So I think when we're talking about uh, werewolves in general, we're talking about the propensity or the, the, the possibility of, of men in particular being capable of becoming pure evil, of adopting a very um, evil kind of persona. And this sort of reminds me of, 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 a, of a, um, a show we did a couple of weeks back, actually it would have been a couple of months back now, on the duality of man and the idea that there is these two sides uh, to every human being. On one hand, we have the rational side. On the other hand, we have this irrational side that comes from maybe a more organic um, place. And when we, in that week, we talked about how you know you need to have a bit of synergy between the two. You need one. You can't have one without the other. Well, I suppose with films about werewolves, we're talking about situations in which people have given in too much to one side. There, and 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 when we're talking about the the werewolf form, that's an organic form. That that that's an animalistic form. That that's when the the intuitive or the instinctive, or at least the dark parts of that side to a human being human being have taken over we've indulged too much of those um those more malevolent instincts so as we always do i think it's a good idea to look at the mythical origins of the subject matter that we're talking about this week but i think it's um this week is a little bit different because so much of uh, our understandings about uh, our understanding about werewolves how they're depicted and, and what we think of them is actually comes from the films that we're going to talk about today or at least one film in particular so we might actually push that part of today's discussion down um, to the to the section in which we actually talk about the films having said that i, I do want to mention that um 
obviously the, the origins of werewolves in general do come from European folklore, which then um, spread across the world and, and, and was reinterpreted in different ways um, following you know colonialist uh, movements across the world. Um, it's also important to say the belief in werewolves developed in parallel to our belief in witches um, sort of throughout the late Middle Ages and the early modern period. So just referring back, uh, as I just mentioned before, to, to last week with manhunting, we talked about the idea of witch hunts. Uh, a similar thing was going on in terms of werewolves and people being accused of werewolves and that sort of thing. And, and that's not to say that werewolves are actually mentioned in the Bible, um, but there are a lot of mentions of wolves and, and, and personified wolves in the Bible. For example, in Acts 20.29, 20, uh, we see, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. So among other people, i.e. I, the, the, the people will act as if they are wolves or they will be wolves, uh, wolves in a way, uh, and not sparing the flock. And then similarly in Matthew 7.15, we see, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So even in the Bible, we have these depictions of, of, of men acting in um, wolf-like um, ways, that there's this inner wolf uh, inside people uh, that, that, that makes them act in a way or, or, or allows them to act in a way which, which threatens the, the innocent flock, the, the, the remainder of the population. Um, so, yes, let's get on to the actual films now. I think it's about time to do so. Uh, the first film we're going to do, well, actually, I should mention, we're actually going to make a bit of sacred cinema history this week, everybody. Um, usually we go one film, two film, three films, uh, four fish, you know, in, in a consecutive order. This week, I want to look at two films together and compare their similarities and differences because they're effectively, uh, you know, the same storyline. They have the same characters and that sort of thing, but there are some um, subtle differences. And I think the fact that they're different is, is, is actually quite significant. So we're going to talk about the Wolfman from 1941 directed by George Wagner and the Wolfman from 2010, or is it, is it the Wolfman? Cause there's no space between Wolf and man there. The Wolfman, <laughs> the Wolfman directed by uh, Joe Johnston uh, in 2010. And then we're going to finish off talking about uh, John Landis's film from 1981, uh, being an American werewolf in London. Uh, but let's get started now with the two Wolfman movies. So as I mentioned a minute ago, I think it's really important to look at these two films uh, together, basically because they have the same essential storyline. I mean, the 2010 film uh, is, for all intents and purposes, a, a, a remake or a reboot or um, a modern adaptation of the 1941 film. Obviously, it's in colour, though, and it's got more modern CGI um, special effects, and it's uh, probably a bit more detailed in terms of production design. I think it's a beautiful movie to look at, by the way, and I think it won an Oscar for Best Makeup uh, in the year it came out uh, in, 2000, in 2010 2011 uh, Oscars um, and also because of all that I think it's really important that we look at them together for, for where they differ because obviously the differences are actually quite significant um, they're quite intentional and they're meant to be quite profound obviously so um, I think it's important to look at them right uh, side by side uh, in terms of analyzing them what I'm going to do is break them down into uh, three or four different themes or ideas that, that are in both of them and then go into how they're the same or different in, in the two films and and, and and sort of what the significance is um, of those, those general themes so the first one I will look at the, the first general theme is is the idea of the moon being the source uh, of, of creation, what, what brings about uh, the wolf side of the wolfman's alter ego. And the, and the first thing I just want to quickly mention is off the back of last week where we talked about the film Manhunter, Michael Mann's film from 1986, um, the, the killer in that film is on a bit of a lunar cycle himself. So I, I think it's cool that the idea, the, you know, these ideas that have, that have come from um, films like The Wolfman or just these general mythical ideas have, have permeated or they've entered... Um, realistic cinema and, and that in a way is sort of like a realistic depiction of the Wolfman in, in a way and I think the more we talk about it this week and, and, and if you think back to that film um, it'll, that'll make a lot of sense actually um, the next thing I want to talk about with respect to the moon though is, is that we're in the realm of the cosmic or we're, we're in the, the realm of the cosmos um, 
and, 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 you know, we're amongst the stars. So the, the evils that are being enlivened by the moon are otherworldly. They're, they're bigger than what the mortal man um, can comprehend in a way. We're dealing with something that comes from somewhere greater, uh, that's coming from something extraterrestrial, right? We're dealing with a profound sense of evil. Uh, also, the other thing about the moon is, you know, if the, if the werewolf comes out, when the moon comes out, obviously all the evil acts that are taking place are taking place at night, in darkness, uh, amongst the shadows, um, obviously, it's a very gothic idea, but but it's also suggesting that the evil acts that we're seeing, these profoundly evil things that, that we're witnessing, um, are hard to see, right? The, the average person can't really see that. And we, dis- we especially see this in the 2010 film, uh, where there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of accusations, a lot of uh, finger pointing at who's doing it, what, how it's actually happening, uh, how, it, how it came to be in the first place, right? The, the fact that these evil acts take place when people can't really see what's going on. Um, it actually aids and abets the Wolfman's axe because he's, it's, it's, it's too mysterious for the average person uh, to be able to observe. And the final thing, well, the final aspect that I want to uh, mention in terms of the moon and, and the significance of the moon is it's a bit of a leap, but but just bear with just bear with me for a bit. But the moon is typically described as silver, right? The silvery moon, or at least if we if we think about it in relation to the sun, the sun is golden, but the moon is silver. Um, if you know your 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 Wolfman um, uh, lore, or at least a, a, as it was um, uh, developed in the 1941 film, silver is the means through which you kill. Uh, the Wolfman, right? So we've, we're getting this idea that, you know, the the, the moon or the, the concept of silver, as much as it giveth the Wolfman, it taketh away, right? The significance of that, I suppose, in a sense, is that the power that is required to kill the Wolfman is akin to the power that creates it. And if we put that in a realistic concept context, we're talking about, you know, these deeply instinctive evils that, that men have a propensity to perform can only really be able to overcome by the same caliber of force uh, that, that, that creates the intention in the first place, right? Like, there's a great deal of power on one end that, that needs to be balanced out on the other end. The next concept I want to talk about is is the concept of uh, you know the, these guys being wolves themselves. Like, why wolf? Why why aren't we talking about where crocodiles or or where cats or where squirrels? Right? Why wolves? I think interestingly, um, the, the the first interesting thing to say is that a wolf is obviously a type of dog. And when we think about dogs, we're, we're talking about man's best friend. We're talking about something that is, is often in solidarity with human beings. I mean, if you think about dogs themselves, they're pack animals. I mean, wolves are certainly pack animals. So the fact that they go off on their own uh, in the werewolf context to then kill other people, it, it, it's made all the more tragic by the fact that it, it is a betrayal of loyalty. It's a betrayal of solidarity. It's not something that we would anticipate. It's not something that we would rely on. In fact, we do rely on these creatures, um, i.e. dogs and wolves. You know, back in the day when we, we we did domesticate dogs for the first time, they were wolves. You know, if we're if we're really getting into the collective unconscious elements of this uh, uh, of this myth. And legend, um, it, it's certainly a betrayal of something that that we have very much come to rely on. Um, so, th- so that's one element of it um, in terms of the, the fact that they're, they're wolves as opposed to any, any other animal. And now I want to move on to how science is depicted in both of these films. Now, there are there are doctors and scientists in in, in both of the films, and, and both films talk about the idea of like like lycanthropy, which is um which is a real illness that you can um, look up on the internet and everything. It's where someone believes themselves to be a wolf. Um, and I, I just on this mention, I want to, uh, just want to mention that there actually is a film coming out uh, later this year called Wolf, uh, which is about a guy who believes himself to be a wolf. So it's interesting that you know these. 
these ideas are coming out in different ways, you know, so it's a good one to, to look, look out for. Um, uh, but, but, but the idea of someone thinking they're a wolf rather than actually believing them to be a wolf, that, that there's all this um, scientific rationalism going on in both of these films. Uh, specifically in the 2010 film, uh, we see Benicio Del Toro plays the wolfman in that one. And we see this really, um, uh, I suppose, confronting montage of him going to this asylum. And, and there's this pretty trippy um, series of shots of people from his life, you know, different voices and that sort of thing, uh, kind of traumatizing him in this in this. In this uh, it's just like this collage of trauma, really, um, going on. And it's the idea that, that thinking we can actually overcome this kind of evil through some kind of rational um, rationalism, some kind sort of scientific um, artificial means of overcoming this kind of um, evil. And, and in, in every single time and every single uh, occasion throughout all of the films we're going to talk about today, uh, it's obviously never enough. It, 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 you need to play into the game of the Wolfman in order to defeat him. Um, and on that, I think it's really important now to move on to the, the final element of these two films that I wanted to uh, mention today, uh, which is the role of the two respective fathers. And I think this is where the two films differ most significantly. So in the, two, in the 1941 film, um, the only way that the Wolfman, the, the way that the Wolfman is finally killed, and I don't want to give away too much, uh, by the way, but uh, uh, the, the, the way that the wolf, Wolfman is finally killed is that his father uh, grabs his cane, which has this wolf head on it. And I think also, just by the way, that, that cane itself almost has some symbolic value in the sense that, you know, a cane is a crutch and it's got this wolf head on it. So it, it's almost lifting up this idea that, that, that this wolf alter ego is a bit of a crutch. It's a, it's a way uh, in which our protagonist is able to... Um, to, to counter some of the insufficiencies or the perceived insufficiencies he may have uh, as an average guy. I mean, he is sort of a bit of an average guy looking um, person. He, he's got the, uh, he's got the suit on and he's a free, fa fairly mild mannered guy. So I think there was a bit of an everyman element to, to all of the protagonists in all three of the films we're talking about today. So the, the idea of the wolf being the crutch, uh, I think is an interesting idea to lift up, but, uh, or to raise, but um, getting back onto the role of the father, um, the Wolfman's father in 1941 is the one that actually ends up killing him and he kills him by hitting him um, repeatedly with this cane with the silver wolf head on it. So he's the one that's able to um, destroy, to, 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 to break the curse and to, to put an end to, to, to all of this madness. So so going back to what we were saying about you know the, 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 um, the power of the moon and, and these great forces, these great cosmic forces at play, the only thing that can disrupt that is the father. And so I think uh, without getting ahead of myself a little bit because I want to talk about this in a bit more detail, but um, there's almost like this godlike quality to, to really to both the father in the 1941 film and the 2010 film that the, 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 the creator the original creator the the, the original authority um, figure is the only one that can, can break this curse D what's different though in the 2010 film is that the father is the creator of the Wolfman. So Benicio del Toro is only able to become a Wolfman because he's bitten by his father, who is the original Wolfman. So again, we, we get this idea that, um, you know, th this, this, this grandmaster father figure um, is, is, the only, is the one that has the power to create this Wolfman creature. Interestingly, though, he is killed uh, by Benicio del Toro. So it's almost, for me, when I watch that one, it's like this idea that, that and, and also... It's important to mention that Benicio del Toro's character doesn't really warrant like uh, 
this curse, and neither neither does any of the any of the protagonists in any of these films. Right? There's this concept that it, that it, this these this tendency to be this evil is actually something that feels out of our hands. It's something that's inherited, and, and as someone that has the propensity in you know in real life to to be quite an aggressive person or to have a temper, sometimes I do feel that that's not part of who I really am. It's not part of my ego, right? It, it like it's this this part of me that I never wanted to have. It's something that I never accepted. I didn't sign up to have this propensity to be to be so aggressive and so angry sometimes. Um, so I think that's a really interesting image in the 2010 film. How Benicio del Toro is is, is sort of um, he inherits it. It's it's an intergenerational thing. It's something that he wants to run away from, but he never he never can. I think that idea is obviously thrown up a lot in a, in a lot of films. More recently, um, the the Australian film Relic has a little bit about that in it. Um, obviously, um, Ariaster's film Hereditary is very much about that. The idea of inheriting evil and then the tragedy of of not being able to run away from something that you didn't sign up for. And so when he does kill his father in the 2010 film, uh, there is this sense of catharsis. He's, he's finally avenged himself. Um, and, and the only way that he is killed is through a silver bullet shot by Emily Blunt's character, who is his true love. So we have that classic example of the only thing that can truly overcome evil is love, or, or at least true love. Um, but let's just compare those two things um, together, right? The, the role of the father, at least the father being, um, you know, the killer in the, 2040, in the 1941 film, and the father being the creator in the 2010 film. It, it's sort of seems like we're a little bit confused as a culture, right? If you, if you think about those two things, just, just sink into those two ideas simultaneously. Which one seems more correct to you? What feels better? The idea that the father should be the one that, that, that ends the curse or the one the father being the one that creates the curse? It seems that we're a little bit confused as to what are the origins and what are the answers to pure evil or the evil that sits within us all. It seems like it's, it's, it's too complicated a question um, for the zeitgeist or for the culture to really answer. I mean, I think it's really interesting when we find these differences in these two, um, in, in mythic stories. It sort of suggests that uh, human beings uh, or the, you know, that Western culture or the global community at large, the global artist community at large, can't solve that problem and perhaps need some further analysis. Um, so maybe we can find some answers if we turn to our third and final film for today, which is the John Landis film from 1981, An American Werewolf in London. So I think it's important to note that the two films that we've already talked about today are quite earnest or they're quite serious in, in terms of their depictions of the Wolfman and they're about some pretty uh, serious material. Uh, in The American Werewolf in London, obviously this is directed by John Landis. So uh, think of the Blues Brothers, Trading Places, National Lampoons, that, that sort of thing, that era of comedies and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's obviously a little bit more uh, lighthearted, it's a little bit more camp, but I think that's it's also important to mention that there's some pretty um, profound and interesting imagery uh, in this film that I think is definitely worth touching on today in terms of developing our, our idea of the, signif the significance or the metaphorical value of the werewolf and adding to the, the lore of that, of that character. So uh, there, there's two specific elements of the film that I'd like to pick out today and, and discuss. Um, but in order to do that, we need to do a quick, very brief recap of the plot of this film. Um, so it stars David Norton and Griffin Dunn, uh, and they play David Kessler and Jack Goodman, respectively, and they're walking through um, northern England uh, on a vacation. 
and they're, they're doing backpacking, I suppose, through through Europe. And um, they both get attacked by this werewolf. Now, Jack is bitten. Oh, well, he's killed. Uh, he's eaten up. Uh, and David is bitten. He is our werewolf. He is the American werewolf in London uh, in this film. Uh, and as the film progresses, David um, keeps seeing um, Jack. Jack keeps appearing as this rotting corpse. And, and he's actually quite uh, docile. And he, he sort of sp- speaks to him. And he, and he prophesizes. He says, listen, David, it's, it's, it's not until you kill yourself or at least until you die um, that your bloodline will end and me as an undead victim um, of the of the werewolf um, can actually ha- feel a sense of closure, feel a sense of finality and go off and die. I, I'm, he's in this, what he calls a state of limbo. Uh, and as uh, David you know, metamorphoses or morphs, I should say, into the werewolf and goes around London killing people, um, this troop of undead people demanding that he die grows and they, they haunt him. This is this, this trail of destruction um, in the form of, of, of real life faces and people, uh, albeit rotting faces, Faces um, that, that that haunt him and demand that he that he kill himself and end end this evil. So we have this really interesting philosophical dilemma here because David hasn't decided to be a werewolf, but all of a sudden he has this burden, like some of the other werewolves in the films that we've talked about today, where he now has he now has a responsibility. Um, to to end his own life, even though he it's not never his it wasn't his fault to to enter this life, but for the sake of other people that they can feel that they that they can enter this next state of existence, which is death, and similarly, you know, to to avoid killing further people, right? So I think that's that's quite a profound idea that, that in life we kind of have these moments where we, we have this um, these powers or we have this propensity to create a, a great deal of harm even though we don't want to um, th- that we have this this propensity or this capacity to to make other people's lives worse um, and even to define their lives by the evil acts that we commit or, or by acts that we don't mean to commit um, you know if you think about um, when when someone is a victim of of, of something there is this terrible tragedy that they don't really that you know that that isn't fair that they're, they're somehow defined um, by the terrible tragedy that happened to them, you know, all the other things that they might have done throughout their life um, is, is is sort of rendered insignificant um, because they were the victims of something that was kind of monumental or, or, or um, of notoriety or unusual or something interesting. Maybe it's maybe it's an accident or maybe they were murdered or something like that. But they they suddenly become defined by their end, by their death, um, which is a little bit sad, right? And and, and I think this the, the depiction of the relationship between Jack and David in this film. Uh, shows you know the, the the linkage um that a victim and a perpetrator have to one another that 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 if you do something terrible to someone you're you're forever haunted by them uh, that they that they follow you around for the rest of your life and that you yourself aren't ever to sh- aren't ever to, aren't ever able to shake that um, in terms of your understanding of who you are uh, in this world, and similarly, you know, a, a victim of something of something terrible, of a terrible act, is forever linked to that act, and until there is a sense of finality and all things are put away, and that person themselves, the perpetrator themselves, is gone, and and there's a sense of closure, um, does does that cease? So this linkage between victims and perpetrators, even when the perpetrator is somewhat innocent or doesn't put their hand up uh, to engage in evil doing, they're always linked, and there is this debt that is owed to to, to victims in that sense.
Um, but this has all been very conceptual, I think. Not just the last couple of minutes, but this entire show has been quite conceptual. We're, we were talking about this idea of you know, this inner evil within all men or within all people. Uh, and, 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 you know, what good is that if, we, if we're only talking about it in the context of, of werewolves and, and, and the supernatural? Where I think that, well, well, I think there is um, a sequence or a scene, I should say, in American Werewolf in London that, that maybe gives us more of a, gives us a bit of a reality check and, and puts things in context that, that we can relate to. So after David has been bitten, he's lying in this hospital bed and he has this, um, this dream sequence. There's actually a lot of dream sequences throughout um, all of the films that we've talked about today. But this one in particular I thought was uh, quite profound. And he has this dream where he's sitting in his uh, living room at home with his family. And it's, it, it's sort of a, a very calm and, and, and soothing Sunday evening or something like that. You know, the, the kids are um, on, the, on the carpet watching. I think they're watching The Muppets, which is, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a kid show in 1981 or whatever. But, you know, it's fairly innocent. It's, it's, it's fairly, uh, um, you know, um, you know a, a fairly wholesome show uh, for the family to be watching. And then the father and the mother that are there. And it looks all like warm and cozy inside. And there's this knock on the door. And eventually they go and answer, and there's this, this uh, what we what we call it, like a like a platoon of uh, hellish creatures dressed in this um, almost like a World War Two esque um, military garb, and they come in and just with these machine guns just chop up everyone in the room. And, and as I said, this film is a bit of a comedy, so so it is kind of daring, but it's also I think it's a little bit um, shocking. Uh, it, it, I think it's deliberately got a bit of shock value about it, which is trying to wake up the audience to say. And I think there's a lot of actually abrupt transitions in this film. I think the film itself ends very abruptly for a reason, sort of to 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 catch the um, to to catch the audience off its kilter, you know, in a way to to, to make it n- not give it time to to unpack or digest things to 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 shock you and, and to make you think only of that shock uh, and not let you um, calm down and, and put it away. And and I and I think that um this scene in particular is a really good example of that. Where we have this very graphic uh, scene of these innocent people being slaughtered by these hellish creatures. And I think what that's getting at is you know what are the ramifications of letting the werewolf out, right? In the realistic in a realistic sense, right? Like this film came out in 1981, so um, it's had plenty of time to think back and. Uh, or it's had plenty of examples to reflect upon in terms of what it looks like when we let that evil alter ego uh, within us all come out, right? Obviously, we compare that to The Wolfman from 1941 um, and, and the Universal monster movies that were coming out at that time. Uh, you could make an argument that these were perhaps a response to the rise of fascism through the 30s and the impending sense that something terrible is going to happen. So people are trying to come to terms with the idea of the worst of human beings. And, and these these anthropomorphized creatures um, were sort of examples or, or symbols for the worst uh, of, 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 of human beings, what, what it looks like to be purely evil or hellish, um, you, know, you know, coming to terms with the idea of pure evil. And in 1981, we've got time to think about that. We know, we now know how bad things can get, right? We know what the World War II looked like. And and these hellish um, creatures that come to this door, they, they, they are quite reminiscent of the of the SS or of the, the Gestapo. The idea of just coming to the, the front door of, of an innocent family and, and slaughtering. Essentially, the worst people doing the worst thing to the most innocent kind of people. So we have this, it's, it's not just, you know, these, these stories about werewolves aren't just about uh, enlivening the inner evil in all of us. Um, but it's about the impact that it has on those that are innocent. And, and it's an idea that, that definitely gets lifted up in a lot of films uh, about beasts and creatures, but maybe a little bit more about that next week. I, I think in terms of concluding today's discussions, uh, we need to reflect on the fact that there is one key similarity uh, between all three films, as much as they differ. 
None of the films end with any of the respective wolfmen living on past the ordeal. They all die in the end. Even though none of them put their hands up to be wolfmen, none of them decide to go out and kill people out of their own volition, none of them make it through the ordeal. And I think that's representative of the fact that as a culture, we still haven't really come to terms with the idea um, the idea of what what do we do when someone goes too far into the animalistic? When someone um, performs an act that is so evil, so horrific um, that that it's that, that you know that's akin to what we see in these films with the, you know, with the gory destruction and everything that we see, we don't have a means of forgiveness or redemption for those people yet. That we we can't really come to terms with that idea without seeing that person permanently put to rest, and maybe there is a sense of sadness um, that it wasn't their fault or they didn't choose that life. But we we don't really know how to offer redemption to someone that goes too deep into the animalistic realm, and that we we kind of have to leave them there and treat them um, like they're a wild creature that can be hunted down and killed. So it's an interesting concept to think about sociologically that that, that there's yet to be a film that's able to perfect an ending. Um, or at least the, to, to be able to think of an ending that has a sense of catharsis that sees uh, the, the, the sees the wolfman live on uh, in in his human state. So that's been Sacred Cinema for another week. I've been your host, Jimmy Berners-Coney, on 2XXFM, people-powered radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, if you haven't gotten in contact with the show yet, we would love to hear from you. Please search for us on Facebook by searching Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Berners-Coney. Uh, but until then, uh, please get to the movies as much as possible, and uh, we'd love to see you again very soon. <laughs>